This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like sort of understated or what this is a land that prays for a hero the humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival you are listening to greening the apocalypse on triple r102.7 fm Indeed, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse. What a ripper guest we've got this uh, this evening. Chris Walsh has been working and writing on the interactions between streams and landscapes for 20 years. Along with Professor Tim Fletcher, he leads the Waterway Ecosystem Research Group and is a senior member of the Melbourne Waterway Research Practice Partnership with Melbourne Water. Just stop me if any of this needs uh, editing. Yeah, it's probably a bit out of date. Actually, 24 years now. Which 24 is, years. Right, so this is at least four years out of date. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I could keep on running oh. through this wonderful bio um, on the Melbourne University homepage, but I could just also hand over and say, welcome Chris Walsh to the show. Thanks, Bushy. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, it was double whammy because you were, you, you, yep. it turns out you were here anyway. That's right. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. First, my first life to wear ever, and then you ring and say, do you want to come and talk to us afterwards? Awesome. So yeah. if anyone else is in there attending a life to wear soon, I'd say you might end up on the show. We'll give you a punt. Yeah, yeah. Um, so your your area of speciality, uh, which I, I have to confess uh, was something I've, I've only recently come to appreciate myself, is rivers and creeks. How uh, how did you become one who loves the rivers? Yeah, you, um, I'm a bit like you. I had to uh, had to grow into them. Mm. I um, I started out doing an ecology degree many moons ago, and uh, I was originally doing marine things. I was oh, yeah. um, the other end of the cycle. Yes, yeah. yeah. I've gen- you know, generally migrated upstream over my career, really, because <laughs> I am. Um, I did, Does that uh, make you a sockeye salmon? Uh, oh, look, I prefer to think of myself as a grayling, an Australian oh. Australian grayling. Hello. Yes. Yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I, um, I started out studying garfish in Western Port Bay in my, yeah. uh, for my honours degree, and then uh, then I did a PhD on estuarine shrimps down at Warrnambool in the yeah, Hopkins right. River estuary, and uh, and then when I finished my PhD, all the jobs that suddenly appeared were, were on on rivers. <laughs> on rivers, yeah, and uh, ended up getting a a really good job with the uh, an organisation that doesn't exist anymore called the Cooperative Research Centre for Freshwater Ecology. Catchy. Which, yeah, which was a, a really great organisation to yeah. work for. And uh, and uh, and they encouraged me to get into, of all things, uh, urban streams and the effects mm. of urbanisation on stream ecology. It was the least sexy area to get into <laughs> as, a, as an ecologist. <laughs> and, and, um, yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, I've managed to make a career out of it. 24 years later, I'm... Yeah, a bit of the, the urban stream guy. The urban stream. You say urban stream, and immediately you conjure up a picture of like a the concreted culvert and some shopping trolleys. Oh right, I was thinking, you know, thinking some some drunkard out the back of the pub. But. Or, or yeah, that's the other urban stream, of course. <laughs> oh. So. All those people who roll out of the um, <laughs> the tavern down there, or is it the anglers, and try and swim across the Maribyrnong on a Sunday uh, afternoon. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
That's not the worst trip. I mean, if you hear stories all the time about up north of people who stumble out of the Daintree Tavern and think there's a river worth swimming across. (laughs) Well, if you're game. Yeah, if you're game, yeah, full of hell's own um, saltwater crocodiles. We were having a good chat uh, before you went in to enjoy the Laura Jean set and um, one of the things you wanted to talk about is why rivers are so great. Oh, yes. well, so that's uh, a good spot to start. Yes. Well, what a nice Dorothy Dixer indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, well, look, I, you, were, you were saying you think that people don't tend to appreciate rivers and, and I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. A lot of people love their rivers and streams mm. but I reckon most people don't appreciate just how important they are for us. Yeah. I think you know, we we probably recognise that most of our drinking water uh, and water that serves our agriculture comes out of out of streams. So, mm. uh, so uh, you know, we, we appreciate that. But um, they really are special from, from a biodiversity point of view even. Um, when we think about biodiversity, we always think about coral reefs or, yeah, or rain rainforests. Yeah. But... Freshwater systems and streams of freshwater systems in general just leave them for dead as far as biodiversity is yeah, concerned. Right. If we, if you think about the world, it's covered what, two-thirds by ocean. Yep. Yep. Uh, and less than 1% of the world's covered by freshwater. Yep. So I think it's 0.8% of the world's covered by freshwater. What percentage of the world's fish do you reckon live in freshwater? <sighs> In uh, that 0.8%. I'm going to go with the flow of what I think you're saying. Oh, 80%? Oh, no, you've... you've, you've overshot uh, it? Overshot it, yeah. Shit. 40%. 40%. Which is still just, pretty... But just in that 0.8%. It, yeah, yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. Good God. Yeah, and, and the same applies if you look at invertebrates. Uh, yeah. You know, the invertebrates aren't as well known, uh, sadly, uh, but uh, but also, you know, a disproportionate number of invertebrate species are found in freshwater systems. So 40%. Well. Can How we can uh, never catch any? <laughs> <laughs> you caught a shopping trolley, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. So let's crack those numbers out again. Mm. You're, so oceans make up about two-thirds of the Earth's surface. Mm-hmm. Freshwater areas make up about 0.8 of 1%. That's right, yep. And yet they contain 40% of fish and... S- 40% of fish species. Fish species. Yes. And then the other 60% of fish species are in that two-thirds of the world's yep. covered by ocean yeah. ocean. Mm. Jesus, that's yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm still with you though, Jed. I mean, I never catch one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're hard to catch, but um, yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of them. And, uh, and look, the other really important thing about about a river, which is to do with the fact that they provide us with clean, fresh water, is that they're a really important part of the landscape for cleaning up our our muck. You know, yeah, they, they, they're they're really important uh, retainer of contaminants in the catchment, and uh, they, they're the hotspots of uh, really important. Processes like denitrification. Do we know about denitrification? So that's a. Well, no, we don't. It's actually interesting because you're just you're covering a few things there mm. in the intro that I think we can go into greater detail as we chat. But um, definitely, when you one of the aspects of the rivers that I think is interesting, you you look very specifically at their interaction between rivers and their catchments. Mm. Yeah, and I I don't know another thing we were chatting about earlier. I always think of how the rivers shape the land and and you you think of that in reverse yeah that's right so when you uh, talk to us a bit about that <laughs> yeah then. yeah when you first broached uh, you know what you want to talk about tonight you said oh you know i'd really like to hear you hear how you uh, how the the rivers uh, shape the landscape and and i thought hang on hey, I, I think about the world in the completely opposite way to that <laughs> and and of course it's it's all about a time scale you're absolutely right of course the rivers shape the landscape but it's on a geological yeah, time yeah and you really need to talk to someone other than an ecologist about that, you're a geomorphologist, a geologist, yeah, people who talk about millions yeah, of years and yeah. things. But you're right, and there are some 
pretty spectacular examples of that around Melbourne. Mm. And, um, and, and I reckon there's a bit of Melbourne where the people probably don't appreciate uh, so much, you know, it's those flat basalt plains out... Out, you know, west. out Keelor and Sunbury Way, you know, you drive, it looks as flat as anything. Yeah, but yeah. if you just take a bit of a higher view, there's these really steep canyons where the, the rivers have yep. eaten into those flat mm. basalt plains, flat as anything that, could, that, of course, were a result of big lava flows. Yes. God knows how many million years ago. See, this is, I don't know. Yeah, this yeah, no, that's right. We won't go there. We'll leave <laughs> that to yeah, the boffins yeah, of rocks. Yeah, but in those millions of years, the, the streams have cut into those flat basalt those those lava flows and, yep. and made these enormous canyons. The other the other area that I reckon is underappreciated and and sadly lost too is the Kuirup Swamp. Uh, oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. which which now is you know flat, boring agriculture with all these the Kuirup asparagus farm. Uh, yeah, and you know these really straight dug agricultural drains through it. Uh, I found a, a map recently where uh, you know of what it was you know, before the Europeans came along, and it was a. Uh, it was called the Great Swamp. Yes. I think it was sort of essentially, you know, the Kakadu of the South in many ways. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just been completely drained, turned into agricultural land and increasingly into urban land, you know, yeah. the, the Pakenham Corridor. And uh, it's um, it's a sad loss in many ways, but I guess it also gives us our asparagus on the weekend well, at the market. Well, it does, and that, that, uh, that stinking urban stream that asparagus <laughs> produced. I always think of, what, you know, Kui Rup prior to European settlement must have looked not unlike, uh, where's that little place that Yoda lives in, in Empire? <laughs> you know that swamp yeah, no, they go into? That's no. how I picture, Ku- I mean, probably not unlike Kui yeah, yeah, no, I reckon. I reckon you're probably bang on there. It's a little bit of mist and, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Star Wars. No, no, not at all. We can geek out on Star Wars <laughs> once yeah, I might just go off. But I'm a bit interested. I mean, we're very much a Melbourne-based show, so we might as well stick to Melbourne a bit. Mm. So, But if we, if we focus on Melbourne's rivers and we look at, the streams, you know, they're very much the product, you were saying to me, of, of their catchments. And we just a, a quick cursory glance around Melbourne. You know, as you say, you've got the Kuirup Swamp area, you've got those western dry uh, basalt plains, you've got the wet forest of the Yarra Ranges, the sand belt streams down the peninsula. What sort of differences are people who are open to such things going to see in the different streams running through those catchments? Well, the, probably the, the biggest driver of that dis, those differences, as well as, well as the, uh, you know, the geology is obviously a big thing, you know, basalt to sand to, to the granite mountains of, of the east, but laid on top of that, which makes Melbourne a really interesting place, is this incredible climatic gradient that we've got a, across Melbourne. So when you're out you know, the other side of Werribee, mm-hmm. you might get four or 500 millimetres a year of rain, and you know, that's getting close to semi-arid, really. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty dry. And then, you know, up in the top of the Yarra Ranges, you know, only 100 kilometres to the to the east, it's over 2,000 millimetres of rain. Yeah. You know, and so you've got, you know, these dense, you know, rainforests in the in the gullies up mm. there and then the wet mountain ash forests of the the Yarra Range, which which produce, you know, wildly different different streams. You know, there's beautiful crystal clear mountain streams that, that yeah. we all love. To the... You know, out out west, uh, you know, something like the little river that uh, that drains the the Brisbane Ranges yeah. is dry six months of the year. Yeah. Um, partly probably because of agricultural practices, but yeah. I think even naturally, you know, it, it would have been dry for a large proportion of the year. You know, these ephemeral streams that that uh, you know, something like the Lerdurg River, which which is, is still pretty pretty untouched, it, it is certainly dry for six months of the year. Mm. But you get these uh, these big. Uh, pools that uh, that maintain the whole year that, that are really important refuges for for fish and yep. and, and other things that uh, that can expand out once the once the river starts flowing. So I just wonder you were touching just on the Yarra Ranges. How much does snowmelt factor into catchments in 
in our alpine area and, and to what degree is you know the potential of snowless winters on the horizon oh, oh look it's probably not that big a deal like it's not it's not like say you know, uh, you know some some of the cities of america are, yeah. are in all sorts of trouble i think when it comes you know that they with their river flows uh, rely very much on on snow melt over the mm, year, but mm. we don't get that much snow here, and so it's not a. No, okay, it, so it's, it's not a, that detrimental. Yeah, not a, not a big contributor to, to stream okay. flows. Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Mm. But um, so I, one of the things we should talk about if we are talking rivers, um, I'm a layman when it comes to rivers. I mean, I, I'm a self confessed creek watcher. I'm one of those people who loves to don the jacket when it's pouring rain and go out and watch the creek <coughs> swell and take shape and start to flow. G'day to Mike Callaway who got me into that. It, if he's listening, it's funny how people are. Or they're not, you know. Like I'm, I'm the same. A creek watcher. I, yeah, I always. Yeah. Do you know the handshake? Yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> um, you know, we live fairly close to Mary Creek, and we walk around Mary Creek all the time with the dog. And so I noticed, you know, if the, it's up or down a bit, yeah. and there's a bit of a fresh in the creek, or you know, I what's get going such a on. Joy but out of it. Half the time, you know, you talk to people, and they'll, you'll go, "Oh, the creek's up a bit today." And I go, "Huh." huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's the layman's approach. So from my perspective as a layman, um, I find a, a catchment a difficult thing to define because I, yeah. in my head I start to go, well, so you have the Yarra River and there's a catchment, but then there's creeks and streams that feed into that, so what are their catchments? So this is something I'd like to touch on. How do you define a catchment? All right. Well, yeah, so they have a few names. I, I quite like... Um the term basin is used to be, particularly yeah. you know, the Murray-Darling Basin they talk about. And basin is probably a good another word for for a catchment. It's essentially if you you think about uh, the the landscape and you think about the direction the landscape slopes. Yes. And uh, and and basically, if you're at a particular point of the landscape and you're sloping towards a particular creek, you're you're in that creek's catchment. Okay. I figure everyone should know what catchment they live in at least. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, you should know, you know, if you're doing something in your, you know, on your bit of land, chances yep. are it's uh, it's going to have an effect on your local river. You should know what you're, what you're draining to. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yes, it, uh, yeah. Well, I think on that note, we might go to our first track, having sort of um, got the ball rolling on our rivers discussion. This was, a, this was a chat that I've been wanting to sort of have for all of the year. I, I think I was saying to you off air that um, as a kid who spent his entire life going to the beach, I never really took to rivers much, but we've been going more and more inland and going to, you know, the Goulburn and the Murray and things like that and... Yeah, see, I, I grew up Kiowa. in the country and, you know, we went to the beach once a year and yeah, so right. the creek was a big thing, yeah. Yeah, right, interesting. We do tend on this show to sort of discuss some of the more troublesome aspects of our times and so we should touch on that with uh, creeks and rivers. At the top of the show you were talking about the uh, incredible biodiversity of our creeks and rivers, well, both in Australia and globally, um, but... You know, can we also touch a bit on... Well, let's touch on that first of all, but let's talk about some of the um, the species, plants, fish, invertebrates and so forth that we've found introduced over the last 230 years and perhaps some of the changes that we're seeing as a result of that. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of sad stories there when it comes to introduced species and uh, they're probably less appreciated than, you know, your, your foxes and your cats. And yeah, right, because they don't kill chickens. Uh, no, well, yes, but, uh, but you know, probably one of the the best-known horrible introduced species in our rivers, of course, is carp, European carp, mm. which makes a hell of a mess of the yeah. of the big rivers. Uh, so know, so yeah. what is what is it about the carp specifically? For oh, those well, who don't know. they're very well. Look, I don't know a lot about uh, carp biology myself, but but uh, you know, I do know that they they're very destructive of the habitat. So mm. they'll sort of uh, 
tend and to stir up the mud, yeah, don't they? Yeah, that's and right. And dig, dig up. Yeah, it's yeah. like an underground feral pig. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. not as delicious. <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah, not. Well, apparently, some people don't, <laughs> yeah, don't mind it. Yeah, not me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but you know, there are lesser known uh, introduced, uh, you know, riverine species. Probably the, um, you know, the the one that's uh, that's of great interest to to any kiwis out there is the is the kiwis revenge uh, so you know we've uh, we've we've wrecked a lot of new zealand by introducing possums and rats to to new zealand but their great claim to fame is to send the new zealand mud snail around the world go on and Woo. so <laughs> Yeah, this so. is the first time I've heard of a New <laughs> yeah. Zealand mud snail. Yeah, yeah. Bring so, it. Yeah, so, uh, so it's a it's a problem in rivers all around the world. It's, it's a tiny little black little black snail, you know, probably only a millimetre long that uh, that you'll see covering covering rocks in uh, in rivers that are, that are certainly wow. pushing out lots of uh, of native species of, of similar little snails. Actually, we've around around Melbourne, we're a hotspot for the biodiversity of these hydrobid snails as the family. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Potamopergus, the uh, the New Zealand mud snails, the same family, and it's uh, it's uh, it's pushed out a lot of our our native Christ. native hydrobid species. Yes. And w- so, what's what's the ecological niche of those little things? What what is it? What's the broader effect of those taking over? What other detriments that we cause down the line? Um, don't know. That's a bit. a tricky one for me. Um, look, I think it's it's probably out out competing. You know, other other invertebrates. I don't yeah. think much much yeah. eats them. Right. Uh, and uh, and and they're probably associated with with creeks that have other problems because they don't mind a bit of extra nutrients, a bit of extra algae because right. they'll eat the algae, and so uh, so, so they uh, adapt better to damaged waterways. Yeah. Thank you, Yeah. Speaking of uh, damaged waterways and uh, different n- uh, nutrient profiles in water, I've been curious for a number of years, and perhaps you can help me with uh, Mel- Melbourne and surrounds prior to a European settlement didn't have deciduous trees and it didn't have autumnal leaf dumps uh, that we do now. And you can you can see on any given day we've got heavy rain and all the all the leaves back up into the curbside channel and flood the roads, everything like that. But what what sort of effect are the, is that huge? Because, I mean, they're very carbon-rich leaves when they're dropped. What effect are we having downstream when those start to get into rivers? Yeah, well, uh, quite a big effect. And there's there's two different scales here too. So uh, so willows are probably the biggest deciduous problem along along our waterways. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's a lot of money spent, you know, in the Melbourne region by Melbourne Water primarily, uh, uh, yeah. pull, pulling out, pulling out willows. The, mm. uh, they do a couple of things. Their, their roots expand into the into the um, the channel of the bed and, and change the form of the bed, simplify it, and so they they reduce habitat. And you're right, though. In in, uh, in autumn, they drop all their leaves. Big dump of organic matter in the stream yeah. that that that, uh, that sinks the oxygen levels in the stream and causes all sorts of problems. So uh, uh, definitely a problem. In in your more urban areas. Uh, the problem becomes much, much bigger because not only have you got your your uh, deciduous trees along the stream, mm. but you've got your deciduous trees right throughout your catchment, yeah. uh, which of course is now connected to the stream by your stormwater pipes. Yep. And so, uh, so you're getting dumps of autumn leaves from all over the catchment being delivered to the stream through pipes. So, so huge mm. organic loads. We were saying uh, while the track was playing, uh, you know, I watched the the drain at Mary Crow over a very exciting life. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have been down there days and this drain's flowing and, you know, there's no rain around. It's yeah. a beautiful sunny day and you can just see the amount of stuff that's mm. um, 
flowing down into Mary Creek and it, it's got to be coming out of people's stormwater drains there. Coming from industry. Yep. So, yeah. So with uh, so what so but prior to European settlement and prior to the introduction of um, northern hemisphere deciduous trees, um, I mean, what, why why is it such a different thing now to, to the the leaves that would have inherently made into creeks and rivers along the way? It was just far less of them. Uh, no, it's probably timing. It's, just timing. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, certainly the um, the leaves of uh, of uh, of riparian trees, the trees that grow along along rivers, uh, are a really important food source for for everything that happens in in the stream. And so streams uh, tend not to not to rely on on algae mm. as their primary carbon source. It's it's mainly from leaf drops. Okay. In Australia, you know, most of those leaves are from these uh, you know dry eucalypt you know sclerophyll leaves and uh, that are quite tough and don't break down very easily. Whereas yeah. you know. Your, your fleshy willow leaves you know, break down like that and rot away yeah. and make things make things worse. So, uh, mm. so they really do mess up the the uh, the nutrient dynamics of, of streams quite badly. So, um, but uh, but you know, riparian trees, the trees along streams, are really important aspects of uh, of a healthy a healthy stream. Okay, mm. there's um there is a few different um, mindsets that come in. I mean, the willow is a bit controversial because some people are. Uh, obviously wanted to take them all out and other people say, well, you know, we've got a situation on our hands in Australia where a heap of species have been introduced and some people I speak to want to assess the the carnage of going along and ripping all the, the willows out versus um, slowly letting them etch back and, and replacing them with endemic species. What's your perspective on the best method to, to, uh, to change that? I'm not really an expert in this, but as I understand it, they've got... They've got that problem down pat pretty well now. I believe what they do is that they um, uh, they chop the chop them off at the at the stump, mm -hmm. and so they're not actually sort of pulling them out, and then they'll poison the poison uh, the stump, uh, poison mm -hmm. the stump yeah. with uh, succession plantings. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. They yeah. did Mary yeah. Creek oh, probably five years back, and I remember when they did it, it was like <laughs> you know flat Atomic earth policy. Battle, yeah, 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 and I thought, what the. What are they doing? Because I saw there was a section up near my house. They did that on the on the Coliban. Yeah, river. but it's and good now. Well, yeah. yeah mm. I was just going to say this was on out in the urban, uh, in the rural area, and as soon as those willows were gone, well, the blackberries were vengeful, as was the Stratoscanthia as well. So it was it sort of was an interesting thing to witness over a few months that. The willows, yes, they're gone, but now we've got a heap of stuff with far more light. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a complicated process. So you, you probably would have been better off talking to some of my colleagues actually <laughs> who, are into, who are into this uh, this riparian planting side of things yeah. and um, and working on the you know, weed control is a is a big challenge when you replant. I'm uh, curious, you just uh, before we came back, I know you touched on uh, Mary Creek and how its catchment is going to be. Pretty much, uh, yeah. you know, concrete jungle. Read my mind. Too. Yeah, that was. I was just going to say. Uh, well, yeah. Let's bring it really local. The Mary Creek is something that I think most Triple R listeners are familiar with, as a result of you know the events we have here and its series and so forth. But it is a creek that's historically been in a lot of trouble. It looks like in what, the far past few industrial decades there's been waste. a lot of industrial waste flows down it. But there's been a lot of work, especially down here, East Brunswick and up through Coburg, to really make it a very livable creek but 
just before when yeah we were at the track you're talking about the urban expansion map mm. and and what yeah. looks like happening to the Mary Creek can we have a bit of a chat about that yeah well to, to start with uh, your Mary Creek down you know down here in in Brunswick it's it's not a paragon of health in itself it, it's oh. got it's got existing problems as a result of the, the storm stormwater the drainage. window dressing on it looks quite good there. <laughs> yeah well that's right you know the and um, these basalt plain streams, and, and Mary Creek is one of those, uh, they're, they're quite different from the eastern streams that tend to erode away. You know, the the, um, the geology here means that, you know, even though it gets gets a barrelling of, uh, of stormer every time it rains, you know, it, it hasn't really eroded all that badly. So so habitat-wise, it's not so bad. But but you look at the things that are living in there and it's ah. it's full of your New Zealand mud snails and your <laughs> your worms and, and shopping trolleys. And, yeah, and shopping trolleys and yeah. uh and O bikes. Oh no no No, yeah, no, bikes have no, cleaned not, that up. Not anymore. That's good. Uh so uh but when you go a bit further upstream, when it, when I first started looking at, at urban streams, we Mary Creek was one of the ones the first ones we looked at and uh and by the time you got up you know around Craigieburn, it was actually really yeah, not yeah, a pretty, a pretty, pretty good, good nick. Pretty good nick, and and that's probably still, still sort of sort of the truth. But you look at the uh, the urban growth boundary, yeah. and part of the urban growth boundary, and and there are a lot of streams around Melbourne that are that are going to be affected. But I think none more than than poor old Mary Creek, because uh, the urban growth boundary essentially extends all the way up to Wallen, mm. and. The Wallen growth boundary extends all the way to the Melbourne growth boundary, and then Wallen goes all the way to the uh, the Great Divide. And so, essentially, what we're looking at is an entirely urban Mary Creek catchment. Uh, well, who knows when? But you know, 2050, 2060, maybe. Mm. Uh, what that means for the creek depends on how we develop uh, develop the catchment. I don't know whether we want to go here now or, or yeah, later no, on. Yeah, let's do it. Let's yeah, do it now, yeah. yeah uh, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing is looking at, at ways you can urbanise and manage urbanisation that that reduces that impact, and it's all about keeping that stormwater out of out of the streams. Mm. If we can develop more of of uh, of that Mary Creek corridor in in sensitive ways that keep stormwater out of the streams, then then we might be able to mm. to uh, hold back some of that degradation in Mary Creek. I'm less optimistic about Mary Creek than. Than some others, such as right. the such as Emu Creek at, at, around Sunbury, I've got more hope there. It's just that you know some of the development's a bit too far gone to right. to change the way. And but I could be wrong. I, I don't know. Before the show, you were talking about the two very different contexts that need to be addressed when you're looking at the problems and required solutions that affect both rural areas and their streams and rivers, and um, the urban areas and their streams and rivers. And you you were saying off air, it's a very it's two very different things out in the the rural areas where we've got agriculture and so forth, the problem is um, over-extraction of water. In our urban and built-up areas, we put too much water in and we need to keep it out. So can let's go from there because maybe speak a little bit about, you know, why we need to keep the quantities out, the contaminants out, and maybe look at some of the development and things we could do. Yeah, so I think, yeah, we can probably... Uh, uh, people are probably most familiar with that, that rural problem of, of streams and rivers mm. not having enough water and... Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm well aware that you know, people understand that because uh, because I get a lot of pushback when I say no. Actually, uh, our urban streams have have too much water. We need to be keeping out, and mm. uh, and um, it takes it takes a bit of convincing. But um, I finally get people around usually. So let, let me let me see if I can uh, give it a crack here. Yeah, uh, I reckon uh, in cities around the world, we, we when it comes to water, we we often 
uh, live in this delusion. Uh, you know, we always talk about, oh, we've got this water crisis. You know, I look at somewhere like Cape Town that's just, you know, just mm. about to run out of water. You know, it was a very similar situation to what Melbourne was in only 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. Uh, Yes, with the uh, with the millennium drought, you know, we were very close to running out of water as well. But it's only because we were looking in the wrong place. You know, if we're relying solely on on our dams, plenty of supply there for ten years. But if it's dry for ten years, we we start getting into trouble. Yeah. In the meantime, even in the driest years, there's too much water falling on our roofs and and roads. Mm. And um, and to understand that, you got to you got to understand how forests work. And yep. forests are really thirsty things. Yes. Uh, and so, the example that I that I always talk about in my lectures is uh, is I like a hectare of forest up in the Dandenong Ranges, mm. where it gets a thousand millimeters of rain a year. Nice round number. Yeah. So a thousand millimeters of rain on a on a hectare of forest is is uh, is a mil- is ten million liters of water a yep. year. Yep. Uh, now, we know by looking at how much water flows down a natural stream in a place like the Dandenong Ranges that only something like 10 or 15% of that rain actually turns into stream flow. Right. Something like 85 90% goes back, up by the trees. goes back up the air. It gets soaks into the soil, the trees suck it up and send it back up into the air. Yep. And so your natural stream is dealing with you know, a very small proportion of you know, what what the rainfall is so so we've got uh, got our forest out there a hectare of forest 10 million liters of rain on the on the forest each year only 15 now what am i saying 1.5 million yeah. uh, are going down the stream let's chop down that hectare of forest and put roofs on it yeah well let's 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 turn it into a bunnings warehouse for instance yeah and um and uh and suddenly we've turned turned that upside down uh, now we're only losing 1 million liters to the air that evaporates off the off the roof of our warehouse, yep. and nine million liters of, of that water is going down the drain, all at the wrong time. Every time it rains, yes, into the pipe, straight to the stream. For the rest of the year, we're not getting when it's not raining. We're not getting water soaking into the soils, feeding those base flows to the stream, and so so we're reducing base flow. So we're reducing flows when it's not flowing. And we're massively increasing flows, the frequency of flows when it when it does rain. Mm. So to turn that round, what are we going to do? We've got to keep a very large proportion of that water out of the out of the streams altogether by using it. Yep. And if you then you know, multiply our Bunnings warehouse up to the size of Melbourne and do the sums, mm. the volume of water that we need to be keeping out of our metropolitan streams around Melbourne is about as much, if not a bit more. Uh, than the water we're actually importing from our dams, uh, even, even in a dry year. Yeah, right. So, so yeah. my couple of uh, two thousand litre tanks is really not cutting it. Well, no, this is the great thing about stormwater is that it it's about it's about frequency, and so it, it rains in Melbourne on average once or twice a week. Yep. Uh, and so, if you can capture each one of those small rain events, you know, you're going to the big ones are going to make it overflow. But if you've got a good enough use attached to your 2,000 litre tanks, mm. then you're going to be drawing them down in time for the next, the, okay. the next rain yeah, event. Yeah. So it's a really secure supply if you, if you take the year, 
the year long. And so yes. I've, I've um, actually a plug a plug for my website, if I may. Yeah, indeed. So I have I have a rain garden diary on uh, on urbanstreams.net is my website, and I, I keep a, a diary of the rain garden that I've built at my place, and and it's a, it's associated to 2,750 litre tank I've got on them. My, my little house in Richmond. Uh, and um, it supplies us with uh, toilet and laundry each year. Yeah. In association with the rain garden that it overflows to, we get virtually no uh, overflow from our property to to the Yarra. And it, it may, maybe maybe nine or ten days a year we'll get overflow out of our property. The rest of the time we're keeping it, keeping it on our property and protecting mm. the stream just by having a small, constant use of water out of our you know, relatively okay. small rainwater tank. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the oh, tanks are doing good. I'm glad I put the extra one. Oh, in. they were definitely yeah. worth. It. I, so this is interesting to me because this is a chat that I. So Adam and I first formed this show off the back of uh, permaculture thinking and and uh, and landscape management uh, and water management, especially in permaculture, is very much about slowing water down, trapping it in the landscapes, um, moving it slowly through soil. But I've also spent um, nearly 20 years in the landscape industry where people. Uh, they sort of seem to fear fear the view of a puddle more than anything else. If there's a little bit of water holding on their yeah. lawn, they yeah. ring you up and you've got the job wrong and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Um, but from what I, one of the great strategies I guess we could use in, in what you're saying is to be able to capture that water and and then just let it gently flow and, and, and not flood our lawns, but you know keep our gardens generally wet throughout the year. Rather than that daily tick 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 tick. Uh, sure, but we've we've got that volume problem because if you're if you still if, got that volume yeah, problem. Yeah, because if you've you've got all that water from your roof uh, flowing into your little bit of garden that's that's perhaps only a third of your property, mm. that's basically three times more than the rainfall that's falling on your right, your right. garden. So so sure, use a third of your of your roof runoff to, to water your garden. That'll keep okay, it, that'll keep it right. But the other two thirds, you should be using you know, in the house. Yeah, mm. yes, and sending it off to the sewage treatment plants rather than. Okay. Yeah. okay. Is the storage and return to soil more of a th- uh, more of a strategy in the rural areas where you were saying off air that the greater problem that we have there is over extraction from rivers? Uh, so, I mean, what, to, how do we switch that around uh, and strategize for better use of water in the rural sector? Well, yeah, so more challenging problems there. I, I think the really nice thing about the urban problem is that, uh, that, it's, that it's actually a solution that benefits both humans and, and the environment. Right. Know, we've got too much water. Let's use it. We're actually helping the environment. It's more challenging in the rural area because uh, agricultural land use uses a lot of water, needs a lot of water to, mm. to grow our food, and so... We've got to get that extra water so we don't have that extra water source for our agriculture. We just need to be smarter about the way that we do agriculture so that we're, we're, uh, we're using, using less water and not, not growing crops that, uh, that are perhaps inappropriate for, yeah. uh, for our climate. Probably a massive infrastructure project, but is the idea of capturing um, that rooftop water uh, in the cities and pumping it back out to market gardens and, and around the, ur- the urban fringes is that a logistics nightmare, or is it uh, maybe look, something that should be looked at? Yeah, no, I think I think that is a potential answer in some places. Uh, mm. You know, there are particularly you know for for small market garden areas. I reckon there's there's a great opportunity to to perhaps uh, piggyback on the excess urban water to to nearby agriculture. When, when you look at say Werribee, where you know there was nothing, and it's rapidly being surrounded by yeah. by uh, urban sprawl. Yes. Yeah, if you could capture that stuff and. And we keep the market garden, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's it's going to be a bit of a local solution. That though, I think uh, uh, the broader agricultural 
problem. The, the volumes of water that the agricultural industry across Australia use are, are much, much greater than the sorts of volumes we're talking about mm. uh, yep. managing sensibly in our urban areas. So. Mm. Well, we talk a, we talk a fair bit on the show about sort of trying to relocalise production of food and things. I mean, maybe that's a thing that begins to take shape as as we see new strategies required for dealing with water. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, so so that that urban water equation lends itself so much to urban agriculture. You know, that's that's part of the solution for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Um, we were just chatting off air. Um, I was asking you about some of the ways that uh, the lessons around water and um, water conservation might uh, get out there into the schools. You were talking about an offshoot of Melbourne Water, the Clear Water Project. Oh, well, yeah, so Clear Water is an organisation that uh, that I think is associated with Melbourne Water. It's broader than Melbourne Water. I think it's okay. probably um, Australia-wide. Uh, that, uh, that is about... Uh, Getting a change in in practice of um, yep. I think it's primarily about urban urban water management. Uh, oh, so not yeah. specifically a school based thing. Not no, like, no, okay. I think they I think they do double double in schools, but uh, but it's it's more about uh, yeah. Also the industry you know, changing the industry's practice. Yep. Yeah, you were saying um, as well. You're very happy with the direction that sort of um, Melbourne Water and, and other associated uh, utility providers seem to be going. They seem to be finally after many many years listening to folks like yourself. Yeah, well, yeah. Look, so I, I should declare that you know, I'm I'm primarily funded by Melbourne Water, so, uh, yep. so I might I might be a biased voice, but uh, but I, I have been having said that you know I have I have been known to be critical of them in the past, but uh, I've been very happy indeed with uh, the way that their current healthy waterway strategy has gone, and so they've just just released the the latest draft healthy waterway strategy, and it's um uh, it's a it's a really nice document. They've done a lot of hard work. Uh, um, engaging with the community uh, and uh, and engaging with the scientists uh, to to provide uh, scientific background. It's been a really pleasing process for us. We've been dragged along to all these co-design workshops they call them, <laughs> where we we have to sort of front up and uh, explain our our modelling to uh, to um, all and sundry who care about rivers. And it's been it's been really satisfying. And people have have really taken to the maps that we've been able to produce that that give some some fairly scary predictions about where our rivers might go. Mm. And one thing that I really do like about the Healthy Waterway strategy is that they haven't sugarcoated the fact that that we are potentially in quite a bit of trouble with the yeah. with the double whammy of of climate change and urban growth. Yes. Melbourne streams are in quite a lot of trouble unless we start doing things differently and uh, and they've um, they're taking that head on which uh, I'm, I find quite pleasing. Awesome. And um, I've just opened up here on the laptop Top uh, urbanstreams.net. This is your website. Oh yeah, so it's a bit it's a bit worky, but uh, but in there there's also my rain garden diary, which I, yes. I think uh, you know it's just uh, it's my it's where my my home and my work uh, join. Indeed, uh, and uh, and how long has this been up and running for? Oh, I don't know, maybe four years or something now. Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah. And and what motivated you to? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's that's probably the geeky side of me. It's actually a we Linux, love geeks on this yeah, show. Yeah, so it's a Linux box that sits in my office. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I, I, I like it. I yeah. think it's a really good thing. Um, people can go on urbanstreams.net. Um, also, I think if they search for you, uh, Chris Walsh through Melbourne Uni, there's various publications and papers that you've written. Yeah, yes, all my publications are on that urbanstreams.net one as well, and a lot of them can be downloaded. And, uh, yep. So. 
Fantastic. So thank you. Uh, it was a last-minute uh, grab to get you on the show, and uh, I think uh, in time we could probably get you back and discuss things further, uh, maybe um, get you um, in step with another geologist and have some big chats about, you know, the yeah, greater picture. Yeah, the, the deep history that you want to get into. The deep yeah. history. Well, I'm, history I'm of rain. keen to explore this whole, you know, argument that's going on at a national level about water and, you yeah. know, what happens in Queensland and how affected that affects what happens in uh, you know, South Australia ultimately. Yes. How much do you, how much do you, um, like, just grip your, your your knuckles into white rage when you see all the arguments that happen around the Murray Darling and these cross border arguments oh, over yeah, water? It's uh, it's been a. Yes, one of those many sadly politicised debacles over, over the years. It, it was looking so hopeful for a while there, the, yeah. the, the Murray, Murray-Darling plan, and um, yes, it's all turned to shit, sadly. Chris, thank you very much for your time this evening, and um, it'd be great to get you back at some stage, and we'll see what else we can expand on with rivers and streams and uh, riparian ecology. Thanks, Bushy. It's been great. Thanks, Jed. Awesome. Yeah. We will see you next Tuesday. We've got a Ripper show next week. If you thought the news about creeks and uh, their current <laughs> condition was uh, morbid and depressing and a bit nihilistic, next week we're talking about solar flares and electromagnetic pulses and mass coronal ejections. That, that'll explain why my uh, Garmin bike computer goes crazy occasionally. It might explain why a lot <laughs> of electronics go crazy, Jed. We'll see you next Tuesday. Until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.